we know about multiple cross-species transmissions from different primates to humans of viruses that are like uh, HIV-1. But rather interestingly, only, only one of these cross-species transmission events has caused the uh, HIV pandemic. You're listening to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the MRC University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research, brought to you by our very own staff and students. I'm Josie Bellhouse, a medical student doing an intercalated degree in microbiology here at the University of Glasgow, and your host for this episode. As part of my undergraduate honours project, I'm working with the CVR to produce accurate, engaging and fun science communication tools, like the podcast you're listening to. Every year, the 1st of December marks World AIDS Day. AIDS results from infection with human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV which is thought to have first emerged in humans in the 1920s. Since then, it has spread across the world, becoming one of the major pandemics of modern times. Thanks to the development of safe and effective treatment for HIV known as HEART, or highly active antiretroviral therapy, clinicians are now often able to prevent the onset of AIDS. However, an effective vaccine or cure for HIV infection has yet to be developed, and antiretroviral resistance is increasingly being seen. Overcoming these issues will require the coordinated effort of both clinicians and scientists. In this episode of Contagious Thinking, we talk to researchers at the CVR who work in three very different areas to find out how they're helping to tackle the continued problem of HIV and AIDS. We speak to Emma Thompson, an infectious diseases clinician in the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde and researcher within the CVR, about the history of these diseases and the important issues with managing HIV infection from a clinician's perspective. We also speak to Sam Wilson, whose work in virology enables us to understand how our cells fight back when they come into contact with a virus like HIV. Finally, we speak to Margaret Hosey, whose research into FIV, the feline analogue of HIV, may be able to give us some insight into how we could develop a vaccine for HIV. So to start us off, could you tell us who you are and what work you do here at the hospital and at the CBR? Okay, uh, my name is Emma Thompson and uh, I'm a consultant in infectious diseases in this hospital and a clinical senior lecturer in virology at the CVR. So how did you end up working in sort of both fields of medicine and science? Okay. Um, during medical school, I was aware that I was really interested in science. I, I felt like we were being taught about patterns of syndromes and things like that and how to recognise them, but perhaps not quite enough about what the underlying mechanisms are that cause disease and, and pathology. And then as I kind of uh, went through my medical training, I, I studied in Glasgow and then uh, uh, then I did my registrar training in London. and. Um, had the opportunity to do a PhD in London uh, and in Oxford University and uh, and then uh, that was all about HIV and hepatitis C and I still work on that now so um, I really wanted to understand a bit about um, why you get disease and how you might think about intervening in the future and how you might think about developing a vaccine for example particularly for hepatitis C but also for HIV. In the most basic sense what is HIV and what is AIDS? Yeah, so HIV is um, uh, it's a retrovirus, so it's an RNA virus, which is um, which was first sort of noticed in the 1980s in gay men in San Francisco, largely, and also in sub-Saharan Africa. So people were 
were noticed to uh, be developing what was called then Slim's disease, where they developed uh, kind of chronic diarrhea and um, a lot of weight loss. And uh, it became apparent that both groups of people, gay men who were presenting to hospital with malignancies, unusual malignancies, uh, particularly Kaposi's sarcoma, and also pneumocystis pneumonia, which had only previously been seen in, in people who were very immunosuppressed with, for other reasons, um, were suddenly sort of getting these, these strange illnesses. And, and so HIV was, um, was found to be the cause of uh, those syndromes in, in sub-Saharan Africa and in uh, the United States. So what's AIDS then? So AIDS um, is acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So what happens with HIV is that it gets into your T cells uh, particularly the CD4 subset of T cells and other cells as well, including things like dendritic cells. And uh, it uh, causes those cells to become very gradually depleted over time. And as those uh, deplete, the, it occurs at sort of different rates. So some, in some people, you can lose a huge amount of your, your circulating T cells uh, in a matter of a year or two, in uh, most people it would take you know five to ten years or something like that. And in some people, it never seems to happen. And there, there are people who can actually control their HIV infection. Um, but when the T cells uh, hit a certain level, um, <clears throat> the cutoff for for particularly unusual infections tends to be 200 cells per millimeter cubed. So um, those when those cells, CD4 cells, are absent or um, dysfunctional, you're more likely to get infections and cancers. So how many different types of HIV are there? The main type is HIV-1, which is a, a, the pandemic strain of, of uh, HIV, which originated probably in DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, but there uh, is another broad group, which is HIV-2, and that um, uh, occurs largely in West Africa and in people who have come from West, out of West Africa. We don't actually have any cases of HIV-2 in Scotland, for example. All the HIV in Scotland is, is HIV-1, and in, in the UK as a whole, there are some HIV-2 cases, but by far the most common is 1. And then 1 divides into multiple different uh, subtypes, and... Uh, those different subtypes are thought to be uh, individual introductions into humans. Um, so it crossed the species barrier on multiple occasions, uh, largely from chimpanzees, possibly uh, in one case from gorillas, and um, uh, that's HIV-1. And then with HIV-2, it seemed to uh, emerge from sooty mangabe monkeys in West Africa. Is there any difference in the clinical presentation or the clinical management of the two types? Uh, HIV-2 tends to be a little bit milder, so people don't tend to progress towards AIDS quite so quickly with HIV-2, but otherwise they're very, very similar. The treatment is a bit different as well, so some of the drugs that we use for HIV-1 don't work with HIV-2, actually, but uh, the syndrome is very similar. What do you think is the biggest misconception about HIV? I think people have different misconceptions depending on what age they are and what their background is. Mm -hmm. um, people my age, you know, in their 40s, particularly gay men, for example, their 40s, will, will uh, come in with a very high level of anxiety about HIV infection because 
Um, they're of that generation that saw their friends and partners and brothers uh, die of HIV-related illness mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so there's a disproportionate level of anxiety there, perhaps, uh, uh, from that group of individuals. And we now um, tell patients that their outlook is pretty much the same as anyone else, uh, mm -hmm. as long as they take their medication. Um, so it's considered to be analogous, perhaps, to diabetes or something like that, a disease which is uh, easily controlled. What we see from younger patients, though, uh, can actually be quite often um, a bit of, uh, uh, perhaps not quite enough anxiety about it. And uh, we, uh, I'm aware that um, people are less worried, perhaps, because they are aware, so people in their 20s are less worried because there's an awareness that there's good treatment for HIV infection. And mm. uh, although there is very good treatment, it's still a pain to have it, to have to take medication every day, and it still increases your likelihood of certain illnesses, particularly... Uh, cancers um, like lymphoma. I think the other sort of misconceptions are are from people who don't feel that they are perhaps at risk um, and, and we see uh, you know all you have to have is one episode of contact you know either through usually through sexual contact and that that's the commonest way in which HIV is transmitted around the world and in the UK and uh, or injecting drug use and I think certain groups of people feel like they're they're not at risk, uh, particularly uh, young heterosexual people don't feel particularly at risk, mm. um, and I think uh, that's a misconception because it just takes one, you know, infected person to to uh, transmit it to you, and you don't ever know who that is. What are the major challenges of treating a patient with HIV as a clinician? So we see people in kind of two different ways. So uh, we see a lot of people who come in for screening and, and are picked up quite early as being HIV infected. And, and those patients are incredibly easy to, to sort out. That's very straightforward um, and usually requires a sort of occasional outpatient appointments uh, for medication and that's about it. Mm -hmm. And then we still see people coming in with advanced infection with AIDS, um, either uh, presenting perhaps with pneumocystis pneumonia um, or with cancers um, and sometimes with tuberculosis. So those are the sort of common uh, ways in which we see people coming in, occasionally also with meningitis, particularly cryptococcal meningitis, uh, which is a fungal uh, type of meningitis which occurs very classically in HIV infection. Uh, they are these, that group of patients are much more difficult, uh, but the outlook is very good as long as we can... Um, uh, get control of the HIV and start repairing the immune system with antiretroviral therapy. But what we find is that it takes time to uh, cycle through quite often two or three different serious infections, for example, toxoplasmosis and pneumocystis pneumonia or something like that, until uh, perhaps three or four months have passed and the immune system has been repaired. So, um, And in fact, when we repair the immune system, that can cause problems in itself. So the, the increased surveillance by T-cells can actually cause pathology and um, people get something called IRIS or immune reconstitution syndrome where we actually have to dampen down the immune response with steroid treatment to stop it going uh, too high, too fast.
So your work also focuses on HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. So how did you end up working on that specifically? Um, so I was always quite interested in hepatitis C infection and, um, and in HIV as well. And when I was working in London um, in the early 2000s, uh, we noticed that there are a lot of patients who are HIV infected coming in with deranged liver function. And we realised that they were acquiring hepatitis C infection um, as a new infection and acquiring it sexually. And it was always considered to be an infection that wasn't easily transmitted in that way. And um, uh, I realised at the time that, that that cohort of patients, because they'd had um, lots and lots of blood tests carried out over, sometimes over up to 10 years or so, and that we stored those blood samples from those patients, we would be able to nail down when they got infected and use those blood samples to look at how the immune response uh, works against hepatitis C infection during the early stages of infection in order to try to understand why some people spontaneously clear the infection and other people go on to progress to chronic infection and develop things like liver cirrhosis and uh, cancer. Okay, so why is it important to study HIV and HCV co-infection? What we know about um, co-infection is that if you uh, have HIV, your hepatitis C is far more likely to progress. And because uh, both viruses are acquired through the same route, it's quite common to uh, see co-infection. It's not at all uncommon. Uh, so uh, usually we, we see people with hepatitis C first and then HIV, but sometimes we see it the other way around as well, like with this cohort that I just described. If you have HIV and hepatitis C, your hepatitis C is likely to progress much more rapidly. You're, you're more at risk of cancer and you're more at risk of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and presumably that's to do with your impaired CD4 response. So you've recently been involved in publishing a case report on drug-resistant HIV. So the most common type of drug resistance most people will have heard of is antibiotic resistance. So does the antiretroviral resistance occur in the same kind of way? Or? Yeah, antiretroviral resistance is common and it occurs uh, in the same sort of way. RNA viruses like HIV, um, they replicate really rapidly and every time they replicate, every new virus will have an abnormality or a mutation in the, in the genome. So very quickly you start acquiring lots and lots of mutations in the genome, some of which uh, result in, in resistance to antiretroviral medication. And if you're not good at taking your medication, so if you take it kind of uh, on and off, that's actually for us the worst case scenario. We, we advise patients to either be off it or be on it, but don't be in between because um, you develop resistance quite rapidly, particularly, for example, to... Lamivudine, which only requires one mutation, the M184V mutation, uh, to cause quite high-level resistance. Uh, and there are, there are some people now acquiring HIV, which is actually resistant to at least one member of, of just about every class of antiretrovirals that we have. So um, resistance is definitely a concern in HIV. Um, we haven't seen it rise to huge levels at the moment but it's something that has to be will have to be monitored really carefully what is hard and how does that help address or how does that help combat antiretroviral resistance so heart stands for highly active antiretroviral therapy and uh, what that means is uh, the, when when hiv was first discovered 
people were given EZT initially and uh, it kept them alive perhaps for an extra few weeks. And then we realised that the, the virus became resistant and so a second agent was added in, um, initially DDI, um, and people were given two drugs at a time and that seemed to prolong people's life perhaps for months. And then in the mid-90s, protease inhibitors came along and very shortly afterwards, uh, NNRTI inhibitors came along and um, we realised that the combination of, of three um, drugs would help to um, prolong someone's life indefinitely. And so highly active antiretroviral therapy is a combined therapy with at least two classes of drugs and usually at least three uh, drugs in combination. They work by uh, interfering with different bits of the viral life cycle. So uh, the first ones um, inhibit reverse transcriptase, so the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, or the nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitor um, drugs uh, inhibit reverse transcriptase in a competitive fashion. Uh, the non, um, the NNRTIs, um, so the, the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, bind to not to the act, the, um, they're not competitive, they're non-competitive inhibitors. Uh, and then uh, the real revolution in HIV came with the protease inhibitors, which uh, inhibit viral protease. Um, and we now have other classes as well, so we have entry inhibitors and integrase inhibitors. I think integrase inhibitors are another major step forward because they inhibit the enzyme that allows the virus to insert itself, the proviral DNA, into the your own uh, chromosomes. So um, we, we very often use integrase inhibitors nowadays first line. Uh, so theoretically, if the virus has a mutation which allows it to overcome one kind of medication, you've got sort of... Yeah, exactly. Medication. Yeah, we've got more than 20 different medications for HIV and um, uh, they... they um, usually we can, it's, it would be very uncommon. I don't think I've ever seen a patient where we haven't had a combination that actually controlled their infection at least adequately. So some patients who are very non-adherent and build up a lot of resistance over time, um, those particularly tend to be people who, who are injecting drug users who, who find it difficult to sort of remember to take it all the time and don't always attend the hospital appointments and so on. Uh, we do see an accumulation of resistance in those patients. And certainly the types of treatment we give get, gets ever more complex. So if I diagnosed you with HIV today, you'd almost certainly be given one tablet once a day, which would have three medications in it. But it, once you got down onto fourth-line treatment, uh, you're taking a lot of tablets with, with uh, potentially a lot of side effects. Yeah. And occasionally we do see people whose CD4 count that we can control, but whose viral load is, is just detectable. So, is drug-resistant HIV transmitted? Yeah, it does happen. Um, thankfully, um, not usually, but uh, it depends a little bit on the on where you are in the world. Um, in London, for example, up to 10% of new infections have got some sort of uh, drug resistance. Usually that's mild and, and of no consequence. Up to one percent actually may have multi-drug resistance, so resistance to more than the, you know two classes of uh, of HIV medication. Uh, it does happen. It's luckily not common in Glasgow at the moment. We're having a big outbreak of HIV. We've had more than seventy cases in the last year or two um, in the east end of the city, and that's with a virus which appears to be resistant to the NNRTIs. So in fact. 
just about every case we've had recently in Glasgow has had resistance. Um, but that's part of a very specific outbreak uh, in the city. Overall, if you look, for example, the UK, it's uh, MD, you know, multi-drug resistance is maybe 1% and or a little bit more in some parts of, of the UK. And uh, single class resistance, around 10%. What would it take to eliminate the HIV AIDS pandemic? Yeah, I think, so first of all, um, I think elimination of the pandemic is possible. I think that resource needs to be um, concentrated in particularly South Sub-Saharan Africa, but also Southeast Asia, where there are um, unacknowledged large numbers of people living with HIV. Uh, and it's a pandemic, so it will require a global effort. Um, but sub-Saharan Africa in particular uh, lacks resource. Um, some countries have really been uh, flagship countries. Uh, South Africa, for example, Uganda, um, Botswana, places like that, Malawi, have got good HIV control programmes. Um, still, however, the majority of people with HIV in sub-Saharan Africa are not on treatment. And... Uh, but in some of these countries, more than 50% are. So there are certain countries that are making great progress. I think we need to get people on treatment. And um, uh, we know that when people are on treatment and have an undetectable viral load, they're incredibly unlikely to transmit the virus, uh, even if they don't use condoms or, or other precautions. So treatment is important. A vaccine would really help, but the vaccine field has been you know, slow, unfortunately. And I think it's possible that, so we, we now need to be looking at other ways of uh, potentially curing HIV rather than controlling it with treatment. Uh, there are various studies going on to try to do that uh, with a variety of different sort of approaches. But um, uh, some of the barriers include the fact that the virus isolates itself in sanctuary sites in the body, which are difficult to access with, with treatment, and also this big problem with integrated proviral DNA, which sits in, in your own uh, genetic material. So uh, those are the... We need better treatments, we need curative treatment, and, and a vaccine would really help. Okay, and what are you working on at the moment, and what are you planning on working on in the future? So I'm working on um, the early immune response to hepatitis C infection and uh, trying to understand why some people spontaneously clear the infection. In, in the patients that I follow, 40% of people actually clear the virus on their own um, without treatment, while the other 60% don't do that. And um, I think that the reason for that is down to... Uh, T-cell responses, so how well your T-cells work and target different bits of the virus. And also uh, B-cells are important as well, so antibody-mediated responses, which tend to target the envelope, the outer part of the virus. Um, so that's my main uh, work, and that's funded by the Wellcome Trust. I'm also, I have two strands in the laboratory, so the other side of what we do is about all about emerging uh, viral infections. And we have a programme in Uganda where we're looking for uh, uh, viral causes of undiagnosed fever uh, in uh, three different parts of Uganda.
Now that we've heard from Emma about the impact of HIV and AIDS, and the importance of her research into HIV and hepatitis C co-infection, we'll be speaking to Sam, whose work at the CVR focuses on the activity of antiretroviral genes, which can be stimulated by signalling proteins called interferons. We'll discuss how HIV emerged into our population, and how the genes that Sam studies act as our defence against HIV and other viruses like it. So, to start us off, could you tell me who you are and what work you do here at CBR? Hi, uh, thanks for inviting me to uh, speak to you uh, today. Uh, so, I'm Sam Wilson and I work at the Glasgow Centre for Virus Research, obviously. And I'm basically uh, interested in how cells uh, prevent infection of different viruses. And I've spent a lot of my career working on HIV-1 and the factors that different species encode to uh, block HIV replication. So how did you end up working in virology? I think it goes back to my uh, PhD. I was always uh, really interested in the idea of having uh, a sort of enemy in your uh, science research, as it were. And uh, viruses seemed like a really good enemy because obviously they cause a lot of uh, 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 you know, bad consequences, damage to human societies, pathogenesis. So it seemed fun to try and uh, work out how uh, cells have tried to fight them. So during my PhD uh, at University College London, I was working on uh, KSHV and host virus interactions. And uh, I noticed in the uh, lab next door that they were working on um, the restriction of HIV, which is a primate lentivirus. And so they were looking at the restriction of different primate lentiviruses. And that work seemed really interesting. So I basically, uh, when I finished my PhD, I just moved to the lab next door because I really wanted to get involved in that kind of research. And I've kind of been uh, on that trajectory ever since. Uh, when you look back retrospectively, it can seem like it's all quite planned and that you, you knew where you were going and uh, what, what you were interested in. But really, we just uh, lurched from one sort of interesting result to the other over a course of many years. So how does your work specifically relate to tackling HIV now? So that's a very uh, good question and a very important question as well, because I think that um, uh, all, uh, obviously science is funded by society. So obviously uh, society has a right to think that they are going to get something back from the research that we do. And really, if you take the kind of work that uh, I do, it's uh, very basic research. It's really trying to understand sort of um, fundamental cause and effect relationships. So. Uh, how this will work to, to tackling a disease like HIV. Uh, in the short term, probably we can't do uh, much, but hopefully over many decades and in the longer time frame, there are things that can come out of it. And really we have to um, discuss many of the details to kind of uh, explain how that can work. Um, but the sort of things that we can find out by studying how uh, cells resist virus infection is that we can try and work out what the genes are that do this and then we can look at how those genes vary in human populations and this can help us identify individuals that might be more susceptible to infection or they might have a, a more aggressive disease course after they're infected so they might be more likely to die following infection. We can also take these technologies and they could uh, potentially be used clinically in the, in the future. Now the therapeutic use at the moment is uh, quite limited and that's mainly due to the difficulty in, in delivering these uh, antiviral molecules, these antiviral proteins to uh, host cells, as it were. Uh, but it, that won't necessarily be uh, a block forever, as it were. And there are people who are trying to use uh, these antiviral molecules therapeutically as some kind of a gene, gene therapy uh, treatment or cure for uh, infection. So it is possible. But I think that it's, it's more um, 
about informing long-term approaches and I think that any therapeutic benefit will be seen in, in many, many decades. So HIV is a retrovirus, so how do retroviruses work and how are they different from other viruses that people might have heard of? So how do retroviruses work is, is an amazing question because we could really uh, talk about that uh, all day or maybe even for the rest of our lives, I don't know. There are many, many people around the world engaged uh, in that very question, how do retroviruses work? Uh, but basically, uh, if we assume no knowledge of virology at all, all, all viruses are obligate intracellular parasites, so they have to enter the cell, replicate their genetic material, and then produce some sort of particle that can then be passed to new cells or new individuals. So uh, retroviruses uh, follow that basic principle, and I think if you were to look at what distinguishes them from other viruses, they have a couple of facets of their life cycle that are, are unusual. They're not, um, it's not only retroviruses that can do either of these things, but they're, they're both together they can really uh, separate them. So a reverse, um, reverse transcription is a process that really is um, a, a defining uh, property of retroviruses. So they have um, an RNA genome, which is reverse transcribed into DNA during their life cycle. And this DNA is integrated into the host genome. So it's these processes of reverse transcription and integration into the host genetic material that really are uh, features that, uh, that sort of define a retrovirus. Why are you specifically interested in retroviruses? Uh, retroviruses have a, a sort of an amazing history uh, because they, they started off uh, as being very important in RNA tumor viruses. Uh, they were uh, initially studied because they were uh, very important in oncogenic processes. But uh, I'm not that old, and so I think the reason that I study uh, retroviruses is basically because of HIV. Uh, the HIV pandemic uh, has been uh, devastating. It's you know, had a huge influence on uh, human culture and economies. And I think that this has led to a huge research effort on um, HIV. So if you're interested in fundamental questions about biology and host virus interactions, then HIV is a very good uh, virus to be centered on because there's a huge community that works on it and there's a huge uh, wealth of expertise and tools. So I, th I think that's why I've ended up focusing on HIV. In your lecture the other day, you described HIV as the ultimate emerging virus. So where did HIV come from? Yeah, I, th I think that that's very uh, uh, important to think about. I think especially for younger generations when uh, you're lecturing because you would have grown up knowing about HIV. But uh, for, for many people, HIV is something that uh, just suddenly, you know, AIDS just suddenly appeared to them in the uh, 1980s. And really, although that's when the uh, clinical AIDS was first sort of recognised, um, people now know that uh, HIV has been around a lot longer than that. So um, estimates uh, are that HIV entered human populations sometime around the 1920s. So it's quite amazing to think that a single um, person that was infected in the 1920s led to this huge uh, pandemic that we have, uh, have today, where I think over the course of the whole pandemic, I think over 70 million people have uh, been infected with HIV. So how this first person became infected. So that's obviously quite an, an interesting and fundamentally important uh, question. And really that person, well, the first person that was infected would have been infected from a cross-species uh, transmission, a cross-species infection event. And our, our best guess is that this came um, from transmission uh, from the bushmeat uh, trade. So the idea is that someone uh, butchering the meat of an infected uh, animal would have cut their 
hands probably, and uh, there would have been blood-to-blood -blood contact of the infected animal and themselves, and this would have led to initial transmission. And the animal was infected with SIV? So this uh, this depends on how on how you're going to name things at that point. So the infected animals believed to be a chimpanzee. We know that by looking at the sequences of viruses that are naturally sequencing uh, naturally circulating in chimpanzees and the uh, HIV one virus. And so this would have been uh, SIV CPZ. So we call that that simian immunodeficiency virus. And CPZ is a chimpanzee. So this was a virus that was in uh, chimpanzees. Now then, obviously, at that first infection event, that's the same virus. And um, that virus would have entered humans and would have been predisposed to being able to replicate efficiently, uh, but probably still had some adaptation to over undergo. And then it was able to spread very rapidly uh, and effectively throughout human populations. Now what's particularly interesting about this is that this is a process that's happening all the time. Humans are exposed to all kinds of different viruses from the environment. Um, I think if you look in the shelf seas, for instance, then there's something like uh, 10 to the 9 virus particles per mil of seawater. Yet if you go in the sea, we don't initially think we're going to come out with a virus infection. So we're continually bombarded uh, with viruses, but most of the time the outcome is good. We're absolutely fine. And, and that's really a fascinating question um, as how, how how that happens. Um, but in the case of uh, HIV, we've been exposed to viruses that are like HIV continually, uh, probably for a very, very long period. And we know about multiple cross-species transmissions from different primates to humans of viruses that are like uh, HIV-1. But rather interestingly, only, only one of these cross-species transmission events has caused the uh, HIV pandemic and AIDS. And so that's quite a, a remarkable and uh, interesting uh, event. You mentioned the steps that the virus has to overcome to be able to infect other humans once it's spread to a human host. So what are the steps that it would have to overcome? Uh, I think you can broadly, as long as you assume that uh, a species or an individual is actually exposed to the infectious agent, then the uh, things that have to happen can be broadly put into two camps. And the way I think about these, are there are, there are things that the virus needs uh, to go about its daily business, to complete its life cycle and make new infectious particles. And then there are the things that the host is deploying to try and block um, this virus. And so the virus needs to be able to utilize the machinery of a, of a new host, and it also needs to evade or counteract the defenses of, um, of the new host. So you can think about those as two separate things. So if we consider the first, which is the, the things the virus needs, um, this means that if you're similar to another organism, it's much easier for the virus uh, to cross this species uh, boundary because our genetic makeup, for example, is very similar to the genetic makeup of a chimpanzee. So most of our host proteins have a very similar sequence to the proteins of a chimpanzee. So if, if a virus was using a chimpanzee protein, then it's very easy for that virus to then use a human uh, ortholog of that protein. So in, in that way, it's easier for a virus to jump from a, a, one similar organism to another similar organism, or at least that's the, uh, the theory. In terms of the, the other arm of this, we have, uh, so, so those are the scientists, we call those uh, dependency factors. Uh, the, the other arm of this would be uh, resistance or restriction factors uh, deployed by the host and also other uh, immune processes. So here, the, um, uh, it, it turns out that 
primate cells uh, loaded with uh, an arsenal of uh, defenses to viruses. And HIV, like any virus uh, that was to cross a, a species barrier, must overcome these uh, antiviral defenses. And there are, there are many different and, uh, and exciting ways in which this could be done, but it depends about how much time we've got to talk about them. <laughs> so there are some defences that are only triggered once a virus enters a cell, but our cells also have some defences that are there all the time anyway, um, which you refer to as genome-encoded antiviral defences. So could you tell us a little bit about those? In terms of things that are stimulated or there already, uh, both of these can be genome encoded, i.e. The, the nature of them is specified by our genome. It's, it's, I think conceptually it's, it's important to remember that they're different from things like antibodies. So if we think about antibodies and a vaccine, we, um, we generate these defences very specifically to target the nature of the pathogen that we've been infected with. Mm. And our, our genome encoded defences, these are specified at birth, so our complement of these is, is defined by the sequence of our genome. And these can either be constitutively uh, turned on in cells, so cells will express these defences um, in, in the absence of any infection or, or a signal, or our cells can turn these uh, defences on, but we can't change the sequence of them uh, still. So scientists then put these into two uh, different categories to, to help us communicate about the, the factors. So we have uh, intrinsic uh, defences, genome-encoded uh, defences, and these are constitutively expressed, so the cells are ready to fight the infection even though the infection hasn't arrived yet. And then we also um, stimulate these defences uh, following infection, and we might get time to uh, talk about that later. It's very difficult to talk in uh, generic terms about these defences, and that's because uh, it's quite remarkable um, how, how the myriad of ways that uh, evolution has found to try and fight viral infections. So if we're trying to talk about uh, what's common between them, it's not the mechanistic uh, things that unite them, because there's many different mechanisms from which uh, antiviral defences have, have learned to combat viral infections. But most genome-encoded antiviral defences are stimulated by some kind of immune pathway. So if um, a, an organism senses infection, it tries to turn up those defences, express more of them, so that they're, they're more able to fight infection. Um, there's also this concept that there's this long-term conflict that's gone on during our evolutionary past. So um, uh, this constant exposure uh, to viruses and the constant uh, changing nature of viruses means that we're always exposed to different um, uh, pathogenic challenges. And so this means that our defences are shaped to our um, infections of our evolutionary past, as it were. And that, that means that if we look at the sequences of our genes in different species, that we can get an idea of um, these genetic conflicts. And, and it turns out that um, genes that are involved in these uh, genome-encoded antiviral defences, they tend to be highly positively selected, which means they're rapidly evolving, and adaptation in these genes is very advantageous, so it's rapidly selected and sweeping through populations and maintained. So there are these signatures of positive selection in our antiviral defences. So how does the interferon system come into our sort of set of antiviral defences, and is there a way that you could... Could you briefly explain what it does? I alluded to earlier that our genome-encoded antiviral defences tend to be um, stimulated by um, 
uh, immune responses. And, and one of the key ones of these is, is uh, our interferon responses. And so interferon responses are, are a very early and um, generic response to an invading pathogen. So they're, they're, not, they're not very specific. We, we turn on the um, same genes uh, regardless of the pathogen uh, with some caveats. Uh, but the way that this works is that uh, cells are able to uh, sense uh, viral or um, infection or the infection with other pathogens. And they respond by uh, secreting interferons. And when we're thinking of viruses, type 1 interferons are the, the main antiviral uh, cytokines. And the interferons are secreted, they initiate a signaling cascade, and this leads to the upregulation of literally uh, hundreds of uh, different genes, and we call these interferon-stimulated genes. So if you think about this, the cells, they're, they're sensing an infection, they're secreting this molecule, and that's telling themselves and the cells around them to basically turn up the levels of their antiviral defenses. It's sort of a get ready, you're going to be infected uh, signal. And so we can use this feature of genes, so we know that antiviral defenses tend to be stimulated by interferon, and we can use this as a way to try and find um, the, the genes that are inhibiting a given virus. And that's actually one of the main techniques that we use uh, in our lab. We, we assemble large libraries of the genes that are stimulated by interferons, and we, we test them in isolation against different viruses to try and, try and identify the proteins that are, are inhibiting a given virus. So can you use those ISGs that you found to look at a range of retroviruses? or? I, th I think that one of the sort of most amazing uh, aspects of the interferon response and, and of ISGs is that they're, they're telling us uh, about our evolutionary history of infections, as it were. So really, um, we can use uh, ISGs uh, to look for inhibitory interactions against any uh, viral pathogen, I think, uh, and, and against really any pathogen that was intracellular. So. I think that um, if, you're, if you're very interested in these uh, genome-encoded antiviral defences, which, which I am, then it's a very natural thing to try and apply these kinds of technologies to as many viruses as you can. And indeed, we, we do that. We try uh, and collaborate with people who are interested in different viruses and try and apply that technology to their virus of in interest and see if, see if the paradigms that have really come to light through studying HIV restriction are, are recapitulated in other host viral uh, systems. What are you planning on working on in the future? So I, I was always, uh, the way I got into this, as I said at the beginning, is we started studying these proteins that were able to uh, block the replication of HIV and related primate lentiviruses. Now, during the course of uh, this work, um, other people were working on a multitude of different uh, aspects of HIV and AIDS. And it became increasingly uh, clear that there was a, a big involvement with uh, the interferon system, uh, not just in protecting species from infection, but also um, uh, protecting uh, a given species from a virus that was actually circulating in that population. So it doesn't, it doesn't protect that uh, species or population from infection, but it nevertheless has an important role. And mainly this is uh, focused on HIV. So even though our host interferon responses do not prevent HIV infection, or from at a population level, or clear HIV-1 infection once we're infected. It seems that when you do the numbers, that the in, a lot of the time the interferon response might be blocking a lot of the transmitted HIV. So it, it turns out that uh, if you, in 
experimental models of uh, HIV and AIDS. So if you look in uh, macaque models with SIV macaque and rhesus macaques, that if you treat macaques with interferon, then they become very resistant to an SIV MAC challenge. And uh, also, if you um, block the natural uh, interferon defenses, they use a, a specific antibody to do receptor blockade of interferon signaling. So basically it neutralizes the interferon response in macaques. And then they do an experimental infection. They find that these um, monkeys are readily infected and they rapidly progress to AIDS. So it, it seems that um, the interferon response, although it's not protecting humans really from HIV, it's nonetheless playing an important role in maybe stopping some transmissions and shaping the uh, subsequent HIV-1 pathogenesis. And so it's of, of great interest to try and find out how interferons are doing this. What, what are the, the um, genome-encoded antiviral defenses, the interferon-stimulated genes that are influencing HIV transmission from one person to another and maybe influencing the ability of HIV-1 to uh, cause pathogenesis once someone is infected? So I think that these are, are an important these are important questions that people working on uh, antiviral defences to HIV-1 are sort of moving on to try and address now. Understanding how our cells respond to infection with HIV and other retroviruses is crucial in allowing us to identify ways to overcome the remaining clinical challenges surrounding HIV, such as finding a cure and developing a vaccine. Now we'll speak to Margaret Hosey, a virologist at the CVR who's working to the feline immunodeficiency virus and other viruses that affect cats, may be able to give us further insight into developing a vaccine for the human immunodeficiency virus. To start off, could you just tell us who you are and what work you do here at the CVR? Uh, my name is Margaret Hosey and uh, I'm a professor of comparative virology here at the CVR, so um, most of my time is spent um, conducting research projects um, with a number of PhD students uh, studying uh, different aspects of feline virology and I also um, am involved in helping the, the diagnostic lab who test for companion animal virus vaccines and I also teach the veterinary undergraduate students and also the veterinary bioscience students and also the students in the honours virology course here at Glasgow. So the thing that we're mainly going to talk about today is FIV which is the feline equivalent of HIV in humans so could you tell us what is FIV? Well feline immunodeficiency virus was uh, first discovered in 1986 um, in California by Niels Peterson and Janet Yamamoto and uh, it, that was just at the time when I was looking for a PhD so um, when I started um, my PhD on feline immunodeficiency virus there was just the one paper to refer to um, which was the discovery of FIV and it was reported in Science um, in 1987 and uh, that paper showed that the virus was isolated from cats that were showing clinical signs very similar to the patients that had been observed in the California, um, in the San Francisco area with uh, humans infected with human immunodeficiency virus. And in fact, um, Niels Peterson tells the story that the owner of the, the cats from which he discovered FIV did say 
um, on first presentation, my cats look as if they've got AIDS because they were showing severe um, weight loss and similar signs to uh, of immunodeficiency as had been observed in humans. So uh, Niels Peterson and Janet Yamamoto grew the peripheral blood mononuclear cells from these cats that were showing clinical signs and from those PBMC cultures, they were able to isolate a lentivirus, which they showed had a very similar structure to the human immunodeficiency virus. At that time, um, they called the virus feline T lymphotrophic lentivirus, but subsequently, as it became clear um, how closely related phylogenetically to the human immunodeficiency virus it was, it was renamed feline immunodeficiency virus. So you mentioned that there are similarities in terms of the clinical presentation of FIV and HIV. So are there any other significant similarities or differences between the two? Um, we do regard feline immunodeficiency virus as the feline counterpart of, of HIV. Both viruses target the um, CD4 positive helper T cell population, um, cause inversion of the CD4, CD8 ratio. Um, we see um, lymphoid hyperplasia in the, in the lymph nodes. Um, early post-infection, we see um, expansion of the B cell areas in the germinal centers. And then in later stages of infection, we see total disruption of the lymph node architecture. I remember actually when Bill Jarrett um, was looking at the pathology of the lymph nodes from our FIV infected cats, he remarked that it, it could have been uh, a lymph node from a, a human infected with, with HIV infection. The um, destruction was so similar in, in the end cases. So aside from who the virus infects, as in cats or humans, are there any main differences between the two or is it a really similar analogue? Well, although I said that you know, they tar both target CD4 helper T cells, it's, it's quite fascinating to us that um, although HIV uses the CD4 molecule as the primary receptor and then one of the um, seven transmembrane chemokine receptors as a secondary receptor, um, FIV in fact does not use the CD4 molecule. And that's interesting because um, the same cell population is targeted by FIV but because this distribution of CD4 in the cat is um, more widespread than it is in, in the human um, PBMC population. The FIV infects a similar target population, but in fact, by using a different molecule, um, the molecule, the primary receptor for FIV is CD134, which is present only on activated CD4 cells. So by using a different molecule, CD134, FIV is targeting the same population as HIV targets by using the CD4 receptor. So there are various other feline analogues of human viruses and diseases, so how similar are the immune systems and immune responses of cats and humans? Um, broadly, they appear to be similar um, in that we know that um, both cats and humans um, mount cellular and antibody responses to virus infection. Um, we've looked 
initially when we were um, developing diagnostic tests for FIV actually, um, we consulted with colleagues um, in the Glasgow Virology uh, Unit who were diagnosing HIV infection and, and by immunoblotting to look at the serological response to infection. And um, it was remarkable this, how similar the responses were with, between the humans and the cats. Um, occasionally we would see cats that had responses to just one of the viral proteins, often P24 on its own. And in discussion with um, our medical uh, colleagues, we were able to um, determine that that was likely to be a non-specific immune response because there are a lot of uh, other proteins migrating at about that uh, molecular weight and so we had we set criteria for um, the positive diagnosis of FIV infection and that was that there should be um, at least two um, bands visible by immunoblotting so um, if P24 antibodies um, in conjunction with say the precursor P55 and um, and sometimes we would see evidence of anti-envelope antibodies, um, but, but a single um, antibody reactivity, say only P24, we would um, regard that as inconclusive outcome. So um, from that point of view, really quite similar. Um, also, we've been able to measure neutralizing antibody responses um, in cats infected with FIV. And um, when we screen large numbers of samples come from our diagnostic laboratory, we can find a very small percentage, about 2% um, of samples, which will have show broadly cross-neutralizing antibodies. And that's a similar um, proportion to what's been seen in individuals infected with HIV. We can also measure uh, cellular immune responses. Um, and although we can uh, detect um, epitopes on the envelope glycoprotein that are the targets of uh, cytotoxic T-cells, we aren't able to define the MHC-restricted epitopes that have been identified for HIV infection because we haven't got that um, depth of knowledge on the feline immune system. How common is FIV in domestic cats and in other types of cats as well? Well, it's very widespread um, across the world. Um, FIV is found in all countries where it's been looked for, um, and it's also present in some of the um, wild large cats, um, the puma in, in the US, um, mountain lions. We, we find um, lion lentivirus in African lions, although um, as yet it's not been identified in Asian lions. Um, when we look at the prevalence of FIV infection in domestic cats, um, the prevalence can range from 5% to as high as 44%, depending on which sampled, um, which populations are sampled. There are some situations in which FIV, because of the immunosuppression it causes, it causes the cats to be really unwell, but in some cases they have quite a good clinical outcome. So why is it that some cats don't have a poorer outcome? That's true. We, we've seen quite contrasting clinical outcomes. And um, this we actually carried out a study looking at two different groups of FIV-infected cats. And the reason 
for this was because there had been quite conflicting reports in the literature um, of the prognosis for cats with FIV infection, whereas some papers had suggested that um, cats would, after a short latent period or a several year latent period, um, develop severe clinical signs and have to be um, euthanized. Um, in contrast, there were other reports, and so I particularly can think of one household where the cats that were infected with FIV appeared to live longer than the cats that were not infected with FIV. So we thought, would we be able to um, look in a, a larger group um, to determine the prognosis for FIV-infected cats. So we studied um, two groups of infected cats. One group um, was a group of cats in a large multi-cat household um, which had unrestricted access to each other. They were quite overcrowded conditions. And in the second group, um, they were cats that were um, following the diagnosis of FIV infection, they were homed in households with um, either single cat households or cats households with only one or two cats. And we saw strikingly different outcomes. In the group um, where the cats were housed in groups of one or two, um, we didn't see any signs of immunodeficiency in the 17 cats that were monitored, and we only um, saw one death in that group of 17 cats. And in fact, that cat had a cardiomyopathy, so that was unrelated to the FIV infection. But quite a contrasting outcome for the um, large multi-cat household where we studied 27 cats and uh, of those 27 actually we saw 17 of the cats died within the 18-month follow-up period. Um, they were they showed dramatic weight loss, um, some of them losing over 50% of the weight from the time of recruitment um, and, uh, and so that was quite interesting to um, see that the cats that had the more overcrowded conditions and perhaps the cats that maybe were um, more exposed to additional opportunistic, potentially opportunistic infections um, seemed to have deteriorated so much more rapidly, whereas the cats that were um, housed in the small groups um, were, were able to um, coexist with the FIV infection much more successfully. And you mentioned the opportunistic pathogens, is that do you think the main reason why they did, um, why they had a worse outcome clinically? Or? I think it's quite likely because I think if cats are exposed to um, opportunistic pathogens, then they um, that's going to lead to a more rapid exhaustion of the immune system um, because they're going to um, it's going to lead to T cell activation, so more target cells for the virus to infect and therefore a more rapid um, depletion in CD4s and a more rapid inversion of the CD4-CD8 ratio. So is there anything from that study that might be applied to human disease outcomes? Or? Yes, I think so. Um, interestingly, in HIV pathogenesis, it's been a widely assumed that the switch in receptor usage that's been observed from um, R5 viruses to X4 viruses is, is a cause of the immunodeficiency. It was assumed that when viruses that use CXCR4 emerged, that coincided with the development of immunodeficiency. And so 
it was thought perhaps to be the cause of immune deficiency. But I think our work with the cats has suggested that um, where we also see a switch in receptor usage, um, although all the FIV isolates use CXCR4 and none use CCR5, um, but we do see a switch in how viruses interact with the primary receptor CD134. And in our study of these FIV-infected cats um, in, that were naturally infected, we were able to see a switch from an early phenotype where the viruses have a strong affinity for the primary receptor to the late isolates which have a, a less strong affinity and can and even later yet uh, viruses, for example tissue culture isolates, uh, adapted isolates like um, the FIV petaluma isolate, um, which has been extensively passaged in tissue culture, it's completely dispensed with the requirement for the primary receptor. Um, and so looking at the um, this household of um, naturally infected cats, we saw uh, a switch in receptor usage um, that was almost a prognostic indicator um, since when we compared the cats that remained alive for the duration of the study versus those that died, we saw that the cats that died were more likely to have the, the late receptor phenotype um, and the same correlation was seen whether we compared sick and healthy cats or cats with who'd maintained their CD4, CD8 ratios um, uh, compared to those where there's you know, a dramatic decline in CD4 uh, population. So our data um, suggests that the emergence of the late phenotype isolates, rather than being a cause of infection, however, appears to be more of a consequence of infection um, because when it seems to be more related to um, the number of target cells that are available for infection. So um, when we looked at tissues stored from cats um, infected longer term with, with FIV, we could see that um, with the shift in receptor usage, we see a shift in compartmentalization of the virus. Um, and I think this has implications um, for how we interpret the role of um, the receptor switch in pathogenesis. What are you currently working on and how are you planning on taking this research further in the future? Well, I think um, these findings with the receptor switch are of relevance for vaccine development. Um, there is a vaccine available. In fact, the only lentivirus vaccine that's commercially available is the Filovax FIV vaccine. Um, it's available in the US, Australia, Japan and New Zealand. We've only been able to study it in field cases by looking at cats from those countries. The vaccine's not available in Europe. How, how does the vaccine work? That's a good question. We um, we know that vaccination leads to the induction of neutralizing antibodies and also to robust cellular immune responses, but we are not able to identify the correlates of immunity. We have collected samples from vaccinated cats um, from Australia, from our colleagues in the University of Sydney, and in 
um, one cat, we were able to uh, isolate FIV. So the vaccine is not 100% protective. Um, some cats that are vaccinated have become infected. And it was interesting to um, examine the uh, molecularly that the sequence of the envelope glycoprotein from the that vaccinate um, who had become infected um, following vaccination um, because interestingly uh, the the phenotype of the the virus that was infecting that cat was the the early phenotype which is consistent with our um, hypothesis that um, the early uh, phenotype viruses are more likely to be transmitted and so we think it's important that vaccines should be um, designed in, to target the early phenotype viruses as opposed to the, the late viruses that perhaps had been thought of as being the cause of immune deficiency. We think it's important to target the early isolates that are more likely to be transmitted. How applicable is the FIV vaccine to the development of an HIV vaccine? Well, I think it's very encouraging that um, we do see a, a level of protection with the FIV vaccine. Um, I think for the HIV vaccine field um, has had a, a massive uh, effort um, put into it um, and the most uh, successful vaccine to date would be the um, RV144 trial that was conducted in Thailand that showed 30% protection. Um, the FIV vaccine um, was shown experimentally and in experimental in contact uh, challenge experiments to protect 80% um, of cats and a more recent study um, conducted in the field by my colleague Mark Westman who's currently working at Glasgow um, showed that um, in the field, cats that had been um, vaccinated with the Filovax vaccination for, vaccine for um, at least three years, so they'd received three uh, annual boosters. Um, of those cats, when he did a controlled trial, he was able to show protection, um, a protection of fraction of 50%. So the vaccinated cats were 50% more likely to be um, protected than the control. So I think that's very encouraging. And I think um, it's important to understand the mechanism of protection because um, the FIV vaccine field, um, similar to the HIV vaccine field, has a, a long history. Um, and we have observed enhancement of infection following vaccination. So I think it's important to uh, understand what responses are, um, cause that enhancement and how can we boost the protective responses and, um, and ideally delete the, the deleterious um, enhancing responses. So I think by using the um, CAT model we can learn a lot um, to advance the HIV vaccine field. At the end of last year, there were an estimated 36.7 million people living with HIV worldwide, and it's hoped that research like that being undertaken at the CVR will be able to contribute to our understanding of the virus and reduce the impact of HIV infection for individuals as well as at a population level. Despite the steps that have already been made in developing pharmacological therapies for HIV, there are still many obstacles to overcome, 
such as tackling antiretroviral resistance and finding a safe and effective vaccine and cure. You've been listening to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CVR. We'd like to thank Emma, Sam and Margaret for giving us their time to tell you about their work here in Glasgow and we hope you've enjoyed it. I've been Josie, thanks for listening.